Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man whose wife once got to meet her hall pass, Kurt Russell, but then couldn't stop throwing up. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay, me! Back again for another It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Uh, I'll quickly tell the Kurt Russell story. Um, you know, the definition of a hall pass is like you have permission, your wife or your husband gives you permission to sleep with somebody because it's like your dream <laughs> to sleep with that person. It's a hall pass. So my wife's hall pass was always Kurt Russell. She like loved Kurt Russell. And I don't know a lot of famous people. I know my guest today, Mark Cronin, but uh, we'll get to him. But I don't know, uh, like tons of famous people. I know, I know some, but one night I, I was... This was after I was on the show Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and the woman who played my wife on the show was Mary Ellen Trainer Zemeckis. She was married to Bob Zemeckis, the big director, Forrest Gump and everything. So, and one night they came over to our house. A couple other people were there at the house for dinner. And who do they bring with them but Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn? We never have celebrities like this in our house. But about a half an hour before. They got there. My wife had eaten some bad chicken salad that day, and she's in the back of our house, which isn't that big and not that far from the living room, and she starts violently throwing up. I mean, as violent a throw-up session as you can get. Now, I've got, so she's in way in the back in our kid's bedroom with with a little trash can, and I have to go back and I tell her, it's like, you're not going to believe it. Kurt Russell. (laughs) who you want to sleep with is in our living room. And when she, she freaks out, she throws up and she goes like literally in the middle of her, what is he wearing? And then throws up. And I had to tell her anyway, uh, that's my, uh, that's my Kurt Russell story. So let's introduce our guest. Premiering this weekend on the WB Sunday, six celebrities, one house, including Tammy Faye, the televangelist queen. I got really strong hair. Oh, man, you do. And Ron Jeremy, the adult film king. I own the organ that was in Frank Sinatra's house. I own the organ that was in many, many movies. Someone had to get these crazy kids together. I might get lucky. Come on. Celebrity makes curious couples. Oh! In the surreal life. Premieres Sunday at 9, only on the WB11. Okay, the creator of that show. Here he is, executive, but we'll get to that in a second, Surreal Life. He's the executive producer and creator of Below Deck, Below Deck Adventure, Below Deck Down Under, Below Deck Mediterranean, Below Deck Sailing Lot, Below Deck Galley Talk. I'm exhausted, and we're just through Below Deck. We're going to get to them all, though. Uh, there's the love of Ray J. My daughter worked on that show. We're going to talk about that. Rock of Love, Flavor of Love, I Love New York, Surreal Life, The X Show. That's where he and I met. A Howard Stern's Butt Bongo Fiesta, Charm School, Beat the Geeks, and his biggest credit of all, Have You Got Balls, hosted by Tim Stack. Please welcome Mark Cronin. Yay! I sound tired. <laughs> <laughs> and you shouldn't be because you have this yeah. great life. Um, anyway, thank you, Mark. We're, we're old friends. We've known each other. I, we let, met on the X show, which would have been 1990, no, 1999. 
99. Yep. The son of the beach was yes. your, you know, you were coming out and we were cross promoting on our, on our wonderful network FX. Yes. We're, yeah. Any chance the X show or son of the beach would be on the air today? Uh, no way. Not on, <laughs> not on the air air that so that people could see it. No. Like, I don't even not think it would play in Thailand. Not without a paywall, <laughs> without a paywall and a, a proof of age. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just, I, 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 sometimes I look at it. I, I don't tell a lot of people about Sun of the Beach because I'm afraid of what, like, oh boy, you know, of the jokes that were done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's over. That's yeah. over. <laughs> it's over. That, yeah. I'm glad not to be in comedy. I mean, I don't know that I ever was in comedy, but no, you uh, were. well, I said, well, working for Howard Stern, but even, even Howard Stern disavows Howard Stern of nine, you know, 1991. Yes. Yes, the you know, thing that made him the king, he disavows it. He's not interested in that at all, and I, I don't think you can even find anything from that period anymore except, you know, bootlegs on YouTube or something. But well, there's a, not, there's a YouTube has a, yes, you're exactly right, they're bootlegs, and they're, they're recordings of VHS recordings. Right, that's like <laughs> Cinescope or something. But so, there's a lot of the Channel 9 show, and I want to talk about that. Uh but before we get to that, I just, uh, in a big macro compliment, because I don't know a lot of people who have done this, but I always think that you beat Hollywood, like you won the game, because you came out here, you did really, really well, and I know you're still at it, you know, not like you were with Below Deck, but you get to live in Massachusetts now, you sort of... You determined your own fate as opposed to Hollywood determining fate, which is how most people play it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, you know, you probably heard this people say it before. It was a combination of being in the right place at the right time in a lucky way. And but also making some calls early on at the right time that were smart. Uh, and I played the hand. I played the hand I was dealt well. I would say, um, and it mostly had to do with, um, it, but but it, really the luck of the timing was a lot of it. Like the fact that I was in reality television before it was really uh, a big thing. It was always a boil on the ass of show business, reality television. It still is, honestly. But there did come a time when that boil really, really got robust and pus filled, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be there for that. Am I taking this metaphor too far? No, no, I think it's perfect. Um, <laughs> it's just on the line. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, yeah. But but I think smart is, uh, you say, and we'll get to your education in a second, but I'll tell you what I think you were so smart about, and maybe it was gutsy, because looking back on it, that's not done anymore, and you you owned surreal life like yes. you produced the show for the wb but you also owned it which then led to your like ricky ricardo almost that's what led to the big success was owning that property how did you finagle that owning it well what happened we were on the wb which right again a, a, a long past something people may not even remember but there was a network called the wb with the wj frog yeah, sure. I, I actually play golf a lot with Jamie Kellner, who started uh -huh. that thing. Started, started the WB. So, so the WB was very interested in scripted television, and they were the home of Smallville and Everwood and Gilmore Girls, and they were very interested in scripted television for young people. 
but they felt like they needed to dip their toe in this reality cesspool. Uh, and they really didn't like it, but they dipped their toe in and they bought only a couple shows. Jamie Kennedy Experiment was one. Which was a funny they, show. It was a great show. I, yes. I love Jamie Kennedy. And then um, and they bought The Surreal Life, which was uh, celebrities all living in a house together. And they bought it on our pitch. And, and, you know, none of this would be interesting or important except for the fact that we did well on the WB, but they canceled us anyway. And they canceled us anyway because we were getting like 5 million people a night, which to these days people would say, oh, my God, that's yes. beyond great ratings. That's a but Super Bowl then, rating. Yeah, yeah. But, but back then it was like, whatever, 5 million people. So what? But anyway, they, they canceled us because they, um, they used to call reality television ratings crack, that the audience would come for, re for reality television, but they wouldn't come back uh season after season for it that that and especially surreal life where they felt like we had to change the cast every season they weren't investing in people like when you when you own smallville you get superman and he'll be there next season and so will right. lois lane and on everwood it was the same thing and on the gilmore girls you can count on these these people that you're investing in as stars to come back every season but they looked at the reality television contestants or celebrities on surreal life as these kind of like, I don't know, uh, disposables that they didn't think were building their network. Um, I don't know, fit a poster or whatever. So they canceled us. They, they felt like, well, you know, it's, it's, we don't want to pay that anymore. So, so that wouldn't have been much of a story either, except that we were able to flip it to VH1. So but let me just go back for one second. So when you went to the WB, though, part of your deal was we own this show. We're covering the deficit. Well, we own it. Right. Well, so this is inside baseball stuff. But you're asked. So so what happened was they're used to scripted television and the way scripted television was made in those days. And I guess in some places still is, is that the network would give you about half the budget. And they'd, they'd say like Smallville in those days cost about a million dollars an episode. And they would say, or 1.2 million an episode. And they'd say to whoever brought them that, let's say that's uh, Warner Brothers brought them Smallville. They'd say, listen, we know it's a $1.2 million show, an episode, but we can only give you $600,000 an episode. You're going to have to go find the other $600,000 to produce your show. And you can do that because you can own it and go to Europe and get some from Germany and get some money from England and get some money from an, a syndication deal for the future or whatever it is, cobble together your $600,000 an episode and we'll make the show and put it on our air. And so with The Surreal Life, they basically gave us that same deal. They said to us when we sold the show to them, look, we can't pay more than $600,000 an episode for this crap. And you're going to have to, if you need more than that, you're going to have to go find it. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Okay, we'll take the six hundred, and then we're like six hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Oh my! Like, We've never been given that much money. <laughs> no, I was like, what? I was making. I think I was making uh, singled out for thirty five thousand dollars an episode. Right. So it was like We were like, couldn't believe it, and we were like, of course, we can make this for six hundred thousand dollars. We didn't have to cobble together the money from anywhere else, and we own the show. Right. And it again would mean nothing because owning a failed reality show from uh 2003 is uh, worth nothing but we were able to flip it to vh1 and say to vh1 which was a cable channel listen we're coming off a license deal for this a, an ownership deal and we need to keep owning it and they said okay which was i guess at the time it was well, fine the fact that you had already done it probably enabled that 
It was like we kind of already had the deal as a right. precedent. It's basically our quote, I guess you'd say. Right. So they let us they let us own it, which again wouldn't be that interesting because most shows go on the air and aren't worth anything anyway. So owning them isn't worth anything. Like what are you gonna what do you how are you gonna make money on a show that you own that has failed and it's getting no ratings? But instead, what happened was Surreal Life really took off on on VH1 and then we started spinning off. Then it was you know flavor of love and strange love and uh, uh, I, uh my fair brady and charm school and all of these shows came out of the surreal life directly out of it like right. stars on surreal life became shows of their own and we kept saying to vh1 these are all part of the same spin-off system and we own them all and again that might not be interesting except that all those hit shows built up to a point where we were able to sell them overseas we were able to uh take publishing money from the music we were able to when vh1 wanted to do top 10 reality moments of the year right and they wanted to include flavor flavor or something we would license the footage back to them at thousands of dollars a second oh my gosh for their own channel for their own show that they're already paying for that we would make them pay to put the show back on their own air oh, but it was crazy but it's not crazy it's smart that's what it goes back to you said the word smart. Yeah, I'm sure there's some timing issues there, but but that's smart to know that going in and also a chutzpah, which you have and and to be able to do that. So um, anyway, Mark Cronin's my my guest. We're, we're going to uh, take a commercial break. Um, are more below decks coming? Are they're, they're on the way, right? Uh, I don't know if more versions of the show. We've already got five, so I don't know that there'll be more versions, but the below deck is steaming right ahead. We are uh, casting and shooting for new seasons now. So, And are you still working on the show? Yeah, I'm still uh, an active executive producer. I'm heavily involved in casting and the high-level staffing, like who the showrunners are and the top editors. And Do you uh, go to the location when they shoot it? I do not. That okay. was a big part of I had a I had a deal where it was built in where I'd either had to go to the shoot and get paid one kind of pay or I could stay back and do what I do now, which is kind of high level, you know, producing, but not actually right. day to day and get a different kind of pay. But that works out just fine. And is Cortland Cox still involved in that show? Yes, he is the showrunner. Oh, okay. that's so great. He's such yeah, a good yeah. guy. Uh, OK, talking to Mark Cronin creator of so many reality shows done really really well uh and let me just pump uh sprung for one second on freebie amazon freebie the show i worked on sprung it's sort of hanging in there i don't know we get a second season i can tell you this we don't own it so <laughs> we'll see what happens you're listening to it's radio with tv's tim stack we'll be right back Everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freevee, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. 
Have you been cheese nachos? Well, then sex draft beer mile high club chicken wings. If hockey jungle sex three way, you could sex cars giant breasts. And with power tools sex sports beef jerky miss November, that could mean golf scotch fried bologna sandwiches. So pick up that threesome and poker sex sweaty sex now. Call 362436. That's 362436. And remember, we don't football sex bowling until you pizza. <laughs> what do you mean you don't write comedy? That was a commercial spoof from the X show uh, where I've met my guest, Mark Cronin, uh, who went on to have such a great career as doing Sound of the Beach at the time. So we sort of talked about a little bit about the X show. I want to go back and again, the word smart, but uh, and I know you've talked about this in other shows, but it's just so interesting. You're from Philly, which yeah. I'm from Philly. You're like much more. I was out in farmland in Doylestown. You were from Upper Darby, Upper Darby, Upper Darby, the home of Todd Rundgren and Tina Fey. You ever, right. Have you ever met them? Like, uh, no, actually, well, no, no, no never met uh, oh, Tina. I'm sorry, that's not true. I have met Tina. Uh, Tina and I were in summer stage together in Upper Darby, but Tina was like the girl who worked in the ticket office, uh -huh. and I was like a star of the stage at summer stage. And uh, but I, I met her and everything. And uh, since then, I think that was my peak moment in on in, you know, being in front of the audience. Uh, and so I rapidly went downhill and she rapidly went uphill from there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I have met her, but uh, she and I don't really know each other. Yeah, you haven't met since you've both been successful in show business. Right. That's that would right. be because uh, Upper Darby, it's like not a lot of people come from Upper Darby. I, you know, well, and we're close. We're not too far apart in age. And she was actually friends with my sister. So she actually oh, really? keeps in touch. Yeah, she keeps in touch with my sister. So, oh, that's you know, fun. We're not, um, I'm not too far removed from greatness. So uh, but you went to University of Pennsylvania and and you went and you were a chemistry major. Chemical engineer. Chemical engineer. Yes, sir. So again, you got to be smart to be, you're going to the University of Pennsylvania, one thing, that's like smart. And then you're a chemical, you're not a communications major at the <laughs> University of Pennsylvania. You that's are, right. that, that I was, you're a chemical engineering major. So, th but did you ever have a chemical engineering job? I did. I, for five years, I, after I graduated Penn, I was a actual working chemical engineer for five years. In and Philly or New York? I went to New York. Yeah. So I, uh, most of the time I spent at a company called Paul Corporation on uh, Long Island designing and servicing, quite frankly, filtration equipment for natural gas plants. And I was quite good <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> at purifying your uh, aiming system stream. <laughs> if you had a foaming problem, if there was, a, you know, let's say some iron sulfide particulate in there and it was causing a foaming issue and you weren't able to get the throughput on your tower, uh, I was your guy. I'd come in there. I'd recommend a filtration equipment of some cartridges. Uh, maybe we take you down to 10 microns, maybe five microns, clean that right up, wipe out the foaming problem. And uh, this know. is another commercial spoof for the X show. <laughs> Mark Cronin services. So. What I read on IMDb, and I know you told me this, but I forgot, is you started writing jokes for a, a show on Nickelodeon? That's right. A friend of mine from Penn, Amy Friedman, uh, who uh, started what I thought was a mistake, which was graduating with a communications degree. There you go. And then uh, going straight to New York and making, you know, $500 a week as a PA. 
uh, I was laughing at these people. I was like, I have a car. I have a nice apartment. Right. I've got a 401k. Like, I really thought I had it figured out and they were all dummies. And there they are working. She's working for Nickelodeon and she's having so much fun. And they're doing this um, spoof news break spoof, you know, like uh, in between the shows. It was yeah, I, I think I remember that. It was called Global Village News, and they would just break in between whatever it was they were showing reruns in those days on Nick at Night, and uh, they would do a fake news story for kids. And uh, the way they worked is you would fax in jokes, and they paid $75 for a half joke and $150 <laughs> for a full joke. That's so and, funny. Uh, and, uh, like a half joke, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, maybe you're- Guy walks into a bar. You owe me $75. Oh, <laughs> the rest writes itself. Uh, I came up with yeah. the good part. <laughs> so I would go to drive to work on the LIE from Manhattan to uh, where I worked on Long Island in Glen Cove. And I would talk into a tape recorder and, uh, off, you know, just headline yes. news. I would write jokes and I get in. The first thing I do is type up my jokes and fax them into Nickelodeon. And then later that day, they'd be like, yeah, we're going to take, you know, three half jokes and a joke. I'd be like, what? <laughs> I was what? And then all of a sudden I was making like $700, $800 a week. And that's like not that far off of what I was getting paid for being an engineer. In right. And having so much more fun. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I maybe I can do this. Maybe I can be a writer and make money and maybe I can survive doing this. And it was, I mean, it's a long way from faxing in jokes to Nickelodeon to making a living. But, but I thought at least it gave me the inkling that I could do it. So I went on a real rampage to get out of engineering and find full-time work. And did, uh, did, did your folks know about this? Yeah. And they weren't super psyched, but it no, was, I kept No parents ever are. No. Yeah. But I didn't actually quit. Like I stayed, I was still an engineer, but the thing I, I did was I started writing jo uh, sketches for Howard Stern's, he was doing a, a Channel Nine show. show. Yeah, the Channel Nine show. That's and the one you can see recordings of VHS tapes on YouTube that are still amazing. Which they're just. I'm very, very proud. Very proud of the tribute to breasts. Which. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, I used to write these free sketches and fax them into the show, and then I'd follow up with a call. And the producer there, Dan Foreman, he answered his own phone. He didn't have an assistant. And they were like, so, you know, look, would I have liked to have done the same thing at Saturday Night Live or David Letterman? Yes. But those guys weren't taking my faxes. They weren't picking up the phone right. when I called. Like, like, you know, it didn't it didn't work there. But at this little show shot in Secaucus where they were like clearly understaffed and clearly didn't have a writing staff except for Jackie and Fred and, and Howard. Uh, I thought I had a shot. I thought I had a shot to convince them. And it turned out I did. It took me six months. And I sent a lot of sketches in. And, you know, for anybody out there thinking about show business, there's some people who are like, oh, never tell anybody your ideas. If you tell somebody your ideas, they're going to steal them. Yeah. And, and you're, they're going to make a mint and you're, you're out and like never tell anybody your ideas. And that's not good advice. <laughs> I feel like, you know, if that's if really all if you have an idea that somebody wants to steal, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That's like so rare that somebody would want something and they're usually willing to pay you for it, honestly. So just get your stuff out there and worry about the other part later, because honestly, if you've only got a couple good ideas, then you shouldn't be doing it anyway. Right. So that's that's yeah. really, really good advice. And it's true. Yeah, and and you, yeah, yeah, you better have more than one idea. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I do have a question about the Channel 9 show, because I remember watching at the time and watching a bunch of, of clips for this. It. You must have learned 
Because then you went to work for the show, right? Full time. It wasn't just sending yes. in sketches. They hired me. They called me up and they said, I got it was John Lolis at that time. And he called me up and he said, I got you in, but I can only pay you a thousand a week. And I was like, a thousand a week. I mean, I'm making 45 as an engineer a year. And that's if I do my math right, that's in the, you know, that's 50,000. I was like, great. So I quit engineering on a Friday, closed everything up. And on Monday, I was in a booth making fart sound effects for Fart Man sketch. Uh, I was like, <laughs> like this, just like doing everything I could, every way I could think of to make a fart sound in this uh, in this sound booth, professional sound booth, right. with a professional union engineer riding the levels on my fart sound effects, and I was like, "Oh, I've done it! I've done it! I'm there! I made it's it!" So funny though, from an Ivy <laughs> League to doing farts in Secaucus, New Jersey. But my, my I'm thinking is. That you must have learned so much so quickly because, and especially with that show, because that Channel 9 show was a combination of like, it's was sort of his radio show on TV. There was a talk show aspect to it. But you would also, like, I remember a sketch where, which was reality TV, which was Howard and the gang go out for Halloween trick or treating. And they end up meeting these girls who they go back to the house and there are massages involved. But my point is, is you're on the street with a camera running and gunning. So it's really like it was a combination of everything you did later on in life to be successful, which was starting in a talk show format and then getting into reality TV. It was sort of all there in this little Channel 9 show in Secaucus. Believe me, Howard knows that like Howard knows that he is the crux, the origin point for so much of what came after, including my career. And I give him absolutely give him credit every yeah. chance I can possibly say it. I said the X show was the Howard Stern show on TV, uh, the surreal life including celebrities that were Howard Stern celebrities, yes. uh, you know, Flavor Flav and China and, you know, I was, we're in the same world and I'm doing what he was doing, which is trying to get celebrities off balance and reacting in a way that isn't what their publicist would have wanted. That's right. That was the goal. It's like, you know, try to get out of like on a talk show on the Tonight Show, they would pre-interview the celebrity and they would go over what little story they were going to tell and blah, blah, blah. On the Howard Stern show, that didn't happen. Like they might do it like they might do a pre-interview with the celebrity, but that was just to keep them happy and shut them up. And then what would happen is they'd come out on the set and find themselves in the middle of a sketch. Right. Like they would just walk out and like we had Gary Busey on and he didn't know it, but we were doing the head injury club for men. And we had every <laughs> lunatic with bandages on their heads. And he and Howard was like in a wheelchair and he had ooze pus, pus oozing out of his head bandage. And he was and he was like acting like a complete, you know, special person and to be, you know, the way we'd say it now. Yes. And then out, and out comes Gary Busey into this situation because, you know, he had two big applause. Yeah, yeah. Big applause. <laughs> and it was like it was like ambush. It was ambush television, which is not, you know, a great way to book celebrities. But uh, that idea that you can get a celebrity into a real place, you can get them to a place where they're not they're not necessarily regurgitating some prepared anecdote. They're 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 giving you something real or a real reaction or something. Well, and I learned so much from Howard about that. And that really was something I, I traded on later. And speaking of that, like creating stories out of personalities 
Is that I know this is going in inside baseball again, but but in terms of 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 producing reality television, I guess my question is, what comes because it it starts with a personality, correct? You have to find a personality, and then you sort of answered your own question already, which is then then you have to create situations for that personality. Is that sort of your job? Yeah, the the it's um. It's stacking the deck. You're basically you, the first step, of course, is find an unfiltered uh, person, a person who can't help being themselves, a person who is not thinking about every word that they're saying about how is this making me look? Are people going to think I'm dumb? Are people going to think I'm this or that? Like, it just doesn't they don't care. It just comes out. I'm just I am who I am. And this is me. And I'm not apologizing. and I'm not going to think about it. And I'm and I've got charisma and I'm you know, I'm prone to say funny shit. Oops, sorry. I'm prone to say funny He'll take stuff. Care of it. Um, He'll clean so, that up. Yeah, clean that up for me. <laughs> uh, the idea is, so you start with that. You start with a, a person who is going to be good with a camera pointed at them. Uh, and there's lots of them. They're not everybody. It's a, it's a small percentage of the population, but there's lots of them. And then you need to stack the deck in your favor. If you're doing combinations of people, you don't want all the same type person you want them to they want you 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 cast for conflict quite frankly because drama uh even scripted drama all you scripted it's just, no it's the same thing is conflict and resolution conflict I, and resolution i say and, that i said up top i watch the news a lot it's the same thing <laughs> that's it's it man fox versus msnbc <laughs> big fight friday night you know it's, and it is it's yeah. conflict yeah that's self-advertising. And, 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 you know, it's funny because people will be like, oh, that reality television, all they do is argue and fight. And then yeah. they turn on their whatever drama, they watch Succession, and they're like, oh, what are they doing? Yes. Oh, they're arguing and fighting. Yes. I love. Yeah. And what are they doing on the news? They're arguing in front they're of arguing. you. And they're, they're selling out. It's just, you're absolutely right. I say that sometimes. People look at me like, no, that's not true. It's the news. It's like, no, it's uh, they're fighting. Um, okay. We're going to take our second break. I'm talking to Mark Cronin, creator of so many shows. Surreal Life really like launched him big time, but so many shows after that. Rock of Love, I'd love that show. That was and really had its own life, that show. I mean, it really it hit a sweet spot in time too that was just fantastic. A lot of your shows are like, you know, like I think like you took a you took an example of a show, but then really turned it on its head. Like Real life became surreal life. You know, Rock of Love was a little like a dating show, but with this rock star, was that a conscious choice on your part? A hundred percent. It was yeah. uh, the first one was for, for me anyway, was um, uh, Flavor of Love, which we used to call the Blackster, Blackster, the Black Blackster. <laughs> so the idea was like the Bachelor was like a gauzy, romantic, yes. Prince Charming. He's perfect. And all the women going after him are looking to marry Prince Charming. And to me, it was like, that is not real life. And those women are not what you really find out in the world. And so we took somebody like Flavor Flav, who, you know, you, it takes a special kind of person to be attracted to Flavor Flav. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, Flavor Flav was attracted to any female. Like he did not care. He would. He couldn't. He didn't care whether you were, you know, Bridget Nielsen, six foot two, you know, Scandinavian woman, or you were, you know, I don't know, Boots. Uh, you know. Uh, so he was like, he really was a great subject for this. It was, you know, and and we wanted to see like what's what's a population of women who might be interested in Flavor Flav. 
be like. And they were, it turned out it was a little bit more real than The Bachelor. I mean, on purpose, like we were being- No, 100%. Yeah. Wildly entertaining and absolutely, yes, more real because you found real people. Like who did exactly what you said. Okay, we ran over into our break. Let's take the second break. I'm talking to Mark Cronin and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hi, this is world famous producer Mark Cronin, and you're on, I'm on, you're on, and I'm on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Okay, do you recognize that music at all? Okay, well, there's a guy on YouTube named Mark Cronin who's playing that guitar. <laughs> and I thought to myself, because it's a very fuzzy picture of him, and it's and he shoots himself from the nose down. He's got a beard, and I thought, you know, Mark Cronin went to University of Pennsylvania, and he was a chemical engineer, and then he got into show business, did really well. Maybe he does play the guitar that well. Anyway, if you ever want to check it out, there's some guy named Mark Cronin. All right, there's also a cop in L.A. named Mark Cronin, and I found that to be very helpful. Oh, really? Yeah, motorcycle cop in the valley. Hey, Mark. <laughs> uh, okay, where am I? I got so many notes. Let's talk about, uh, we're not going to get to Philadelphia yet. We're going to save that for the last one. Um, so let me talk about uh, my daughter, because Mark Cronin gave my daughter who's done she's still at it and is a vice president now and doing very well i'm, I'm bragging for her it's but she got her first job uh working for mark cronin on ray j what was that ray love and ray j what was that one for, for the love of ray for j. the love of ray j first of all i have a feeling i'm not the only friend of yours whose child got their first job with you. I'm thinking you've gotten a few calls over the years. Hey, can you give my kid a job as a PA? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. But I've never regretted it. It's always been. That's great. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, always- sh- and also shocking because the ones yeah. I've gotten sometimes are like, okay, we got six more weeks with this kid. We can't fire him. Kid, when is the firing line for this guy? The kid's horrible. You know, <laughs> can we set him up somehow so, so we get rid of him? He does something horrible. So anyway, it's a funny story because she she gets her first job and she, her first assignment was to go pick up Ray J at the airport. So she gets a van. They give, here, take the van. And she's really nervous at this point. Take the van, go to LAX, pick him up. Okay, it's all good. Ray J gets in the car. And he's in the back of the van, says hello, meet like, yeah, great, gets in the back. And the first thing he does, because he's been on a plane, is he lights up a big bowl of weed in the back (laughs) of the car. Now, she doesn't call me. She waits till she gets, I think you were shooting in Calabasas, maybe? Uh, Yeah, yeah. She gets to the location, and then she calls me, and she's freaked out. It's like, Dad, what do I do? The star of the show, Ray J, he's smoking pot, too. What do I do? I said, you do, you go Sergeant Schultz here, Murphy. I, I know nothing. nothing. <laughs> I see nothing. Ray J wants to smoke pot. You don't know a thing. You just, and anyway, that was her introduction. But then <laughs> she went on to work with two guys you used to work with, Gary Auerbach, who was involved in the X show. I remember him. And then she yep. worked for him a little bit at E, and then Chris Abrego, who was your partner in the beginning of 
surreal life and all that at Endemol. So anyway, that's another way. That's a long way of saying thank you for launching my daughter's uh, career. Well, clearly uh, she earned her way to the top. So that's great. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, the great thing about show business, it really is a meritocracy. It's like you just won't make it if you don't kick ass. And yes. if you do kick ass, you will make it no matter how old you are, no matter what your GPA was, no matter where you went to school. If you kick ass, you will make it. I, will, I tell people that all the time. I have a guy, my wife's knee doctor, son was a musician. It's just like, you know, if he's got the drive, somehow you find a way. Somehow it works out and, and you find a way. Um, so uh, let's talk. Let's let's do a little prelim of the of the last segment, which is about Philadelphia. Um, so also, let's go about the University of Pennsylvania because I know you're going to agree with me on this. Is University of Pennsylvania has the greatest football field in the country in Franklin Field, which I just saw a picture of, and it's just it's so. Um, they were having the pen relays there, and I saw a picture. It's just so beautiful. And next door is the greatest basketball arena, which is the Palestra. Yeah. Now, but you've been going to Franklin Field since you were a kid. Yes. Well, my dad used to bring me, well, he used to bring me to the Palestra. He was uh, Villanova. So, you know, big five basketball yes. in those days was, was the greatest was deal. And you play, they play at the Palestra and be like, you know, double hatter. It yes. was always, you know, St. Joe's versus Villanova, Penn versus uh, LaSalle. And it was, Great. And that that room uh, was electric and loud and intimate. Like you felt like yes. there's no way that the players couldn't hear what every single row of person person was saying at every row. Um, and uh, Franklin Field, a lot the same way, like the most intimate football field, like the distance between the fans and the players yes. is very small. Like you just do not see that anymore. Right. Your, uh, your, your knees are almost touching the back of the person. And they were benches. They were not seats. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, the they're probably off. seats now, but I remember they were benches and your knee, even as a kid, my knee was poking the back of some big Italian guy from South Philly. <laughs> well, the Eagles played there, you know, I guess yes, that's how you Yes, yeah. that's what. Yeah. But, Until they built the vet. And talk about uh, like the polar opposite, a giant cement structure where the fans are pushed way away uh, from the field. Uh, Franklin Field is completely there. It's almost like watching a game like on a tennis court. Yeah, Tara, just the vet though. I have a friend, one of my really good friends from high school, uh, played football at Delaware, and he said, and they played Temple at the vet, and he said they'd be run, he'd be running on the field, and all of a sudden it would be like boing, like a trampoline on the forty yard line out in the middle of what would be center field, and the vet literally like. Like a summertime trampoline, you'd see like on Long Beach Island, like running, and then all of a sudden you'd you'd bounce down and then come back up and you'd run again. After he said it was just horrible. Um, but you, but correct me if I'm wrong though. You went to a lot of Eagles games when you were a kid. I think we talked about that. I I did, but I I started at the vet. My dad had season tickets in the nosebleeds in uh, Veterans Stadium, and when the Eagles wore white. Yes, with green, with the green uh, wings Still and Roman, Roman Gabriel, and they were terrible, really <laughs> terrible, really fun to boo, I guess. But uh, but listen, I cut my teeth there in that in that cold cement stadium. So your dad, but your dad had season tickets when they were at Franklin Field. 
No, he would. Oh, okay. They he would go. Later. He would go to games. He would go to games at Franklin right. Field. I, I never saw personally. Never saw an Eagles game at Franklin Field. But I saw. Of course, I was at Penn, so I went every Saturday to see Penn play. Yeah, and um, it was great. And just you know, yeah. It's no, it's the best. It's the best place. One of my, yeah. I think my earliest sports memory is my dad said to me, "This is I can tell you what year it was 1960." He came home, or he, he was, it was a Sunday, and he said, wow. And he came in, I think he was playing golf or something, and he came in, and he goes, well, the Eagles just won the championship. I had no idea what he was talking with about, but it was like 1960, Franklin Field, which is considered one of the greatest games ever um, yeah. of the Eagles championships. Uh, Richard, how are we doing on time on this segment? We're all, okay, we got plenty of time. So let's talk some more about Philadelphia, because... Um, because obviously you got into television, so TV as a kid must have played a part in your life. And there's so many crazy, like, let me just say this about Philly first. I always found it so funny because people from Philadelphia, especially, oh, absolutely the ones who don't leave, they don't care about anything but Philadelphia. They don't, like... They're an hour from New York, and New York is terrible. It's te- nothing going on there. It's all about Philly. Yeah. Philly pride. <laughs> but I, here's the question I have for you. is I feel like, at least in my career, I feel like, first of all, it gave me a sense of humor. Um, but also, it kind of gave me like a weird curiosity about the outside world, about leaving there and and fulfilling a dream a little bit does that make sense to you at all i totally relate to that like there's just something there's something about the way philadelphia is not one of the center city like it's not new york and it's not la and it's not chicago no and it can't even figure out are we the fourth largest city are we the fifth largest city? We're like, number even, one we're number one right and we're like and we're proud of the fact that our teams do better than they should you know what i mean it's like 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 oh yeah of course new york does great yeah they got all yeah they got all the money up there yeah but if philly does good that's because we earned it you know like we earn our our place in the world and so it's got this perfect chip on it like just a little inferiority complex and uh that's a great that's a great motivator i Uh, I agree that's what i'm getting at it's like it just it gives you a motivation so, and But the, I will say this. The one thing I found, and I don't know if you found this, when you did get in the outside world, and especially dealing with people in show business, at first, I, I was almost speechless. And I was a waiter when I first got out here. So that sort of helped me because I had to wait on these people. I had to, like, take their orders and listen and say, would you like a salad? You know, at least that got me talking. But I was so intimidated by anybody and i think also again because in philly who we're gonna all these celebrities philly celebrities we're gonna talk about the next segment like they were stars and and these other people were so beyond that i couldn't relate and i was i was tongue-tied when i first got to la seeing celebrities and anyway any thoughts does that compute at all with you 100 percent. i mean i still have it like i'm not good around celebrities and you could say well you made a career out of something but it's like no not i mean like if i run into a real current celebrity i can't i you don't approach them 
I can't do it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I get self conscious and tongue tied, and it's the Philly. It's a Philly thing, I guess. Would <laughs> I guess you nose to if you saw either Todd Rundgren or Tina Fey, like you're in a market or so, whatever you are. Oh, that, those guys, I'd go. Would right you up go up to, to Todd like, Rundgren? Oh, what's up? You're a Philly celebrity. Okay, you know? here's what happened to I me once. Todd Rundgren went. They went to my high school. Those two. I, I once I would this is part of the reason why this didn't help my my uh, stammering with celebrities. It was early on the groundlings and uh, I was in the, I kept, walked through the lobby and Paul Rubens, who was Pee Wee Herman, was in the groundlings who I knew a little bit. And he was starting to get you know famous at this point. But Todd Rundgren was there and I you know, I love the band Naz. I was a huge Todd Rundgren fan. Leroy boy. Is that you? And I. Made the mistake of walking up to him, doing exactly what you don't do. And I walk up to him, and I he's in mid-conversation, and I, I've never oh. done this since. I oh. tapped him on his shoulder, and I said, are you Todd Rundgren? And he said, yeah. I said, oh, your song, Be Nice to Me, it's one of my favorite songs. And he, went, and he sort of went like, uh-huh. And he had no interest in talking to me, which I completely understand. I literally <laughs> interrupted his conversation. Why would he want to talk to me anyway? So I understand why you don't approach. But I was curious about those two because you went to the same high school. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know them. But if I think I would approach them. Like, I think I have a lot of there's a lot to say more than just, you know, I like, uh, you know, I want to bang on the drum all day. But uh <laughs> I think I would have a point of reference for both of them, but um, but most celebrities, and as you say, those are Philadelphia. To me, those are practically Philadelphia celebrities. Right. Uh, uh, real, real, out in the real world celebrities, uh, I find intimidating. Yeah, and it's just like Philly. there's not a big payoff by saying anything. There's, yeah, that's right. It's like, what's the upside? Are you really going to be friends? No. Right. So no. Chances are they're just going to say like, "Thanks a lot." Right. That's that's right. the most you're going to get. Um, <laughs> Okay, we're going to take our last break. I'm talking to Mark Cronin, creator of so many reality shows and producer of so many reality shows. And I know we got more Below Decks coming down the road, produced by Cortland Cox, um, who I need, to, I need to get in touch with him after this, which I will do. Uh, Please do. He would love that. He's always he so fun to have a beer with and, uh, and talk yeah. to. Uh, talking to Mark Cronin, and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, it's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. This isn't Jeremiah On the road, fly on the road. Yeah, <laughs> fly, fly on the road to victory. <laughs> hit him low, hit him high. No, yeah. hit him high. Yeah, hit him low, hit him high, and you watch our eagles fly. You said yeah. that already, Mister Lyricist. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't think Ira Gershwin stepped in on the uh, Eagles fight song. Uh, I go to an Eagles uh, uh, bar sometimes in Santa Barbara. There's an Eagles bar in Santa Barbara. There's an Eagles bar everywhere, I think. Yeah. And uh, I go to one in Santa Barbara, and it's just, oh, my God. When they like AA meetings. There's just one everywhere. (laughs) This is the opposite of AA, though. (laughs) If this was an AA meeting, it's, oh, boy, they need an intervention on this one. Um, Okay, so we're talking about, I want to go back, and we're talking to Mark Cronin from Philadelphia, and I want to, run some names by you of Philadelphia TV personalities. You've already told me one story, which I want to, I want you to start with, which was Sally Starr. <laughs> Sally Starr was a kid's, uh, I think it was a weekend kid's show where she wore this crazy cowgirl outfit and she had root and toot and shit, shit <laughs> six guns. And she would introduce uh, cartoons, but she did little sketches in between the little things that she would introduce. Yeah. And one of the sketches was a classroom where she was the teacher and the kid or no, like somebody else was the teacher and she was one of the little kids and she was being really bad, like talking when the teacher turned around and throwing spitballs. And, and it was funny. It was a sketch as a lesson to kids what not to do. No, just these thought it was funny. Oh, really? Oh, good. Good for Sally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There was no lesson. And that was the problem because my mother was a school teacher and she saw she was saw that I was watching this. And she said, that's not the way you behave in school, Mark. And I don't like you watching something like this. And so she wrote a letter to Sally Starr saying that it was inappropriate to show children misbehaving and even giving them ideas on how to misbehave in a class and blah, 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 blah. And I was mortified because I really loved Sally Starr. Yeah, everybody did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now I was being embarrassed by my mother uh, with her letter writing. I mean, but anyway. w- one of the things I love, and this is the next name I'm going to throw at you, is and, and I, I, because I'm a little bit older, I have it a little bit more etched in my memory, is Sally Starr led into you know you get like the lead-in show sally star led into chief halftown do you remember chief halftown (laughs) (laughs) tell the kids who chief halftown it's all so politically incorrect you've got you cannot do that chief cowgirl leading into a native american with a full war bonnet on showing cartoons (laughs) after school what a crazy like is that that doesn't happen anymore. There isn't this like ridiculous like wraparound show for short. Like they used to do it for the Little Rascals. They used to do it for Beavis and, and Butthead. I think was the last one to do it. Oh yeah, like they, yeah, like a couple guys introducing something else. And yes. it's uh, but boy, it was a local in Philadelphia. They had quite a collection of personalities uh, doing that kind of stuff. We had a guy, Captain Noah. Yes, he had. A, big ship set and he would sing and uh teach you about the rainbow and uh uh he's very sweet i I seem to remember that was kind of some kind of religious based show but it was kind of under an under undertone there's a little indoctrination going on (laughs) kids are your parents listening um so here's another uh are you familiar with pete's gang that might be a little before your time pete's gang i think that's that's before me, I think. So I that know. was the, that was the, I would, you'll like this story because I came from Doylestown, which was 99.999% white. Like, and it wasn't so anything tired. like, you know, it wasn't like a standoff or anything. It's just, it was pretty far out in the farmlands and it was a very not diversified town. 
So, but my brother and I used to love Pete's gang. And one of the reasons we loved it, Pete's gang was the father, Pete was the father of the actor, Peter Boyle. And he had a clubhouse. Like it was a bad set, you know, and just one camera, just a horrible set made of paper. And he would, uh, and he would show Little Rascals, which I loved, still love Little Rascals. And he would open up, he'd have a rope and a gate would come up and these kids would pile in and then form rows of kids, you know, sitting on a floor and they would watch Little Rascals. But the kids came through and first of all, there were a lot of Cub Scouts and our father wouldn't allow us to be Cub Scouts. Whatever he's like, he held the line as Cub Scout. You can be a Boy Scout, but not a Cub Scout. Anyway, okay. So we wanted to be Cub Scouts, but the other thing was, which I really like thinking back on it, the audience of kids was completely diversified. Like there Ooh. were, it was fifty percent white kids and fifty percent black kids. But being from Doylestown, part of our entertainment was like my brother and I got to watch black kids. Like we. <laughs> We didn't have that experience at all. So anyway, Pete's gang was etched in my memory. I want to throw another name. Dr. Shock. Were you a Dr. Shock oh, yeah. fan? Yeah, Dr. Shock. And the horror, he'd show horror movies and come in, you know, and it was, they used to do a spoof of it on Second City TV with a some kind of Dracula. It, I don't know yes. if it's spoofing Dr. Shock, but it's kind of Elvira, same yes. thing. It's like, you know, uh, somebody who's like, oh, it's scary, isn't it? You know, yes, like, yes. like trying, they're trying to scare you in between scenes yes. of the film or something dr shock always got up out of a coffin he opened the show yeah. and like <laughs> and it was terrible makeup and it was just again one camera but i think every market had one because howard used to talk about howard stern used to talk about a guy named zacherly and my uh -huh. wife and i think new york's version of dr shock was zacherly um what about uh here's another name we willie weber is that oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. We Willie Weber. And that was my, he was my, he was a UHF. These are all probably UHF. This is the, the second dial on the TV. You had the, the VHF dial. Yes. Went, went click, click, click. And you could go through, you know, channel three in Philadelphia to right. channel 12, which was PBS. And then you had the dial, the, the, like a radio dial. <laughs> and you dial in the UHF channels. Yes. Which, 17, yes. Channel 29, yes. Channel 48, Columbus, yes. Philly. Well, you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly so, what you're talking about. But every city had this, so people will know. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just so Philly. You dial in your UHF, and then you could get Wee Willie Weber, and he was showing you, like, uh, I don't know, was it like uh, Ultraman, maybe? or Yeah, the cartoons were a little hipper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, like, weird showing cool cartoons, and he was my savior after school because my both my parents worked. And I was a latchkey kid, so I'd come in at three, you know, after yes. school, and nobody's going to be home for a couple hours. So I would, like, Wee Willie Weber was my guy. Like, that, you know, that's my dog. <laughs> Another thing I remember about Wee Willie Weber was, every once in a while, he was the fill-in guy for the news. <laughs> <laughs> like, suddenly he would appear behind the dead, like John Facenda was gone that night, and Wee Willie Weber, I think he was on Channel 6, but I think whoever, Vince Leonard, whoever, Philly news person. Well, that was, was Action. Channel 6 was Action News. Action News. And any any favorite news guy? Well, Larry Kane, I remember. He was the big Larry guy. Larry Kane. Loved Larry Kane. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Great news guys from Philly. Uh, Vince Leonard was another. Uh, and there was a guy named Bob Bradley. I don't know if you remember him. He had a he had like skunk hair. He had, <laughs> he had black hair and then he had this white shock of hair 
but it was all sort of co- like it was part of his pompadour that came out. Anyway, um, here's the name I wanted to run by you that I still can watch these videos on YouTube. Al Alberts. Were you an Al Alberts fan? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I was a fan. Like, he, it was just an organ. Like, it was a guy, like the kind of organ you saw in the mall. That's and- Now you're thinking of Larry Ferrari. Oh, who, oh, right. Larry Ferrari. <laughs> did I just mix up Larry Ferrari with Al Alberts? Yes, but that would be, that's completely understandable. <laughs> and I believe Larry Ferrari, this is what a bad, I mean, I, I think I'm good senility wise because I can remember things like this. Where Larry Ferrari followed Chief Halftown, <laughs> the beautiful lead-in of a guy in a war bonnet right into a guy playing an organ. What kind of audience are we talking to right now, Tim? Like, who are you targeting right now? <laughs> They've left a long time ago. We don't have to worry. <laughs> These two old guys talking about Philadelphia nobodies from 1965. That's the thing, that deal I made with Jeremiah, who produces this show. I said, you're going to let me do it. Sometimes there are going to be people on here nobody's going to care about. <laughs> we could talk more about Howard Stern. We could I, talk you know, about that. Uh, <laughs> let's do it. What do you got? What do you got? You got Al Alberts. What was what was he? Is he a saxophone? No, Al Alberts had a Sunday. You go on YouTube when we're done here and look up the yeah. Al Alberts showcase. He had a show on Sunday mornings on Channel Ten, and it was a little kids talent show. And Al was a member of a group called the Four Aces, I think, which gives you all kinds of credibility in Philadelphia. (laughs) He was a member of the Four Aces. Okay, great. That's that's fantastic. Good job. Ace of Diamonds. So he would have little kids on, but they would always tell a joke. And I'm telling you. Go watch this. They would tell a giant, and they would t- they would, little kids with Philadelphia accents, which is even more disgusting <laughs> than an adult with a Philadelphia accent. And they would say things like, "Tell a joke." They'd say, "Like, why did the chicken cross the road?" And Al Alberts would say, "I don't know why. I don't know. Go ask him." Like, <laughs> that's the punchline. They'd get seventy five dollars for that joke. <laughs> That's not even a half joke. That's a full joke. <laughs> That's a full joke. I want my $75. Um, but anyway, he would have these, and then he would sing himself, and they were all local Philadelphia talents. Go online and check out Al Albert's showcase. I'm Now I'm telling our entire audience, not just me yeah. and Mark. If anybody <laughs> is still there listening, go to Al Albert's <laughs> showcase, and I promise you it's one of the funniest bad TV examples you'll ever see. Um, okay, we're wrapping it up here. Mark, thank you so much for doing this. My You're pleasure. G- that was fun. Um, you said you come out for the Emmys every year. Yeah, to lose. It's funny. I don't want to, I never cared. I was always, in fact, I had <clears throat> one of my little companies was called Never Nominated Productions. I was like, it's never going to happen. This swill is never going to be nominated for, you know, never going to get an Emmy. And I never cared and I never thought I'd even think about it. But then they nominate you and it's like, hey, you might get one. Right. You might get one. And then you go all the way out and you get a tux and you go to the thing and you listen to the nominee. And you watch that whole insufferable three hour presentation, of all the other crap shows. And then you lose. Right. And, uh, but and I'll keep going. Back. I'm going to keep going back and get kicked. If I get nominated, I'll go back because why? I want one. I guess I want one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. Uh, anyway, Mark, thank you so much for, for doing this, Mark Cronin. Good luck. Not good luck. Good luck. 
Thank you, Dr. D. Thank you, Dr. D. Richard Dugan, the engineer, Jeremiah Higgins, our producer, puts this whole thing together. Uh, and you've been listening for another to another episode of It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. See you next time. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.